We've been blessed this morning to hear from Mike and Mary Dickey, who have been part of our congregation for about 25 years. Mike and Mary are just an ordinary couple. They do not have formal theological education, no stunning achievements, no published works. They've been employees of World Impact for about 15 years, but they're not on salary. Aside from a modest amount of support they receive from our church and a few other sources, they are self-supporting missionaries. I want to do a biographical study with you today from the New Testament concerning another ordinary couple who, like Mike and Mary, were lay people, not professionals, but who also traveled widely to do evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. They are mentioned six times in four different New Testament books. But I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about them. I know I've never preached one before today. I would like to help you trace the spiritual journey of this young couple so that we might catch a glimpse of what we can learn about the impact ordinary people can have for the gospel. We first meet Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18 in the Greek city of Corinth, where the Apostle Paul has just arrived from Athens while on his second missionary journey. I invite you to turn with me to Acts 18, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And uh, I want us to read... The first three verses, Acts 18, 1 to 3. It says, After this, that is, after Paul's marginally successful presentation of the gospel on Mars Hill in Athens, which is talked about in the previous chapter, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. We learned quite a few things about Priscilla and Aquila from these few verses. Aquila was Jewish, and was born in Pontus, which is in the south-central, north-central part of Turkey. We do not know the age at which he moved to Rome or the reason for his move, but it was undoubtedly there that he met Priscilla, a Gentile with a thoroughly Roman name. We may surmise that at some point she was attracted to his faith in God and perhaps became a um, proselyte to Judaism. Of the six times this couple is mentioned in the New Testament, her name comes first four times, which was highly unusual in that culture. Some scholars suggest that this may be because Priscilla was of a higher social standing than her husband. Or perhaps she was the more gifted of the two. Either way, we might say that Aquila married up, which is not all that unusual among the guys I run around with. 
We're not told when this married couple was converted from Judaism to faith in Christ, but since Paul gives no indication that he was involved in their conversion, uh, I assume that they were already Christians when they arrived in Corinth. You see, the gospel had reached Rome very early after the crucifixion of Christ, helped by the Roman roads that made travel so easy. But what are Priscilla and Aquila doing now in Corinth? Well, the text tells us they were forced to leave Rome by the emperor Claudius, who gave an edict that all Jews had to leave the Roman capital. Suetonius, the Roman historian of 2nd century AD, wrote that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Now, I think it is likely that Crestus here is a form of for Christ or for Christians, and that seems to tell us that these disturbances of which Suetonius speaks were probably stirred up by Jewish leaders against Jews who had converted to Christianity. We read about such riots frequently wherever Paul took the gospel. In fact, we see it right here in Acts 18 and verse 12, where it says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, the emperor could have instigated an investigation to find out who was responsible for these disturbances, but he took the easy way out and just told all Jews to leave Rome. Since this edict can be dated with fair accuracy by uh, secular history to the end of A.D. 50, we can suppose that Aquila and Priscilla arrive in Corinth in the early months of A.D. 51, which fits perfectly with the date of Paul's second missionary journey, which took him through Asia Minor and ended up in Corinth, where he stayed and preached for some 18 months. So how did Paul meet Priscilla and Aquila? What was undoubtedly through their common vocation and their common avocation. You see, all three of them were tent makers by vocation and disciplers by avocation. Tents were a major item of commerce in the first century. They were used to shelter animals, used for business, used for major events. Sometimes people even lived them in them as permanent housing. Tents were sometimes made of leather, but more commonly by weaving goat's hair into cloth. This material was called silicium because it originated in Cilicia. If you know Paul's background, he was born in Tarsus, which is in the region of Cilicia in south-central Turkey. So it's no surprise that Paul learned to make tents at a young age. Aquila, too, was from Pontus, just north of Cilicia, and so he learned the same trade. When Priscilla and Aquila arrived in Corinth, they undoubtedly started a tent-making business to support themselves. 
It was common in those days for trades to be concentrated on certain streets in a city. The um, silversmiths would be on one street, the basket weavers would be on another, and the tent makers on still another. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he was in financial need, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.9. So it was only natural for him to go to the street where the tent makers had set up shop and find work and build relationships. There he meets Priscilla and Aquila and soon discovers that they, like himself, are believers in Jesus. Before long, he's invited to live in their homes and provide for his financial needs by working for them. It's the start of a useful business relationship. But more importantly, it's the start of a great partnership in the gospel. Do you know the difference between a vocation and an avocation? As these terms are normally used, a vocation is what you do for a living. It's your career. Your avocation is what you are passionate about. It's your hobby. Now, there are a few people who, whose career is their avocation. They are passionate about their work. They can't wait to get to work. But that's not real normal. Many people end up wondering about their careers. What's the eternal significance of what I am doing? Um, perhaps you're one of those who asks that question. Well, Priscilla and Aquila might have asked that question too. But instead of focusing on the relative meaninglessness of weaving goat hair, they used their career, their vocation, as a means to put food on the table so that they could use their time to pursue their passion, which was sharing the gospel, discipling people, and church planting. Perhaps you've heard the term tent maker used metaphorically of bivocational pastors and missionaries. That use of the term originated right here in Acts 18. It refers to those who are engaged in gospel ministry, but who support themselves in whole or in part through working in a business or a trade. Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Mike and Mary are all tent makers. For these three, they were tent makers both literally and figuratively. Today, there are many bivocational pastors who serve churches that are too small to support them. I have a dear friend named Andrew Dyer who was the bivocational pastor of Palmyra Baptist Church on North Andover Road, just north of Highway 254, for many years. He served as IT director for an oil company and pastored the church on evenings and weekends. He did such a good job that this past January, the church grew to the point where they could support him full-time. Bivocational missionaries are the only kind that can get into certain countries that are closed to gospel witness. So they set up a business or work in a hospital while doing evangelism and church planting during their free time. Our church has sent out many of these tent makers down through the years. Lucas shared with me that we currently support between 10 and 15 
bivocational missionaries currently. Many of their names you do not know because they are serving in sensitive areas. Well, apparently Paul worked with, lived with, and ministered with Aquila and Priscilla the entire 18 months he was in Corinth. My suspicion is that he found time while making tents to disciple this couple, and maybe late in the evenings as well, because he was preparing them for a future ministry that God had in store for them. So when Paul finally decided to leave Corinth and return to his base of operations in Antioch, he took Aquila and Priscilla with him, and they went through Ephesus briefly for Paul, and he dropped them off there so that they could help build up the church in Ephesus. It was while this couple was doing evangelism and church planning in Ephesus that another key individual enters the picture. His name is Apollos, and we read about him in Acts 18, verses 24 to 26. If you'll look at that, I'll read it. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I would summarize this man's life as gifted communicator, humble learner. Apollos was also a Jew, like Aquila and like Paul. He was born in Alexandria, which is on the northern coast of Egypt and one of the largest cities of the ancient Roman Empire. It had a large and vigorous Jewish community, characterized by a love of philosophy and with a tendency to allegorize scripture. Apollos was a learned man, according to verse 24, which implies that he was highly educated in the classical disciplines, rhetoric, philosophy, logic, Latin, etc. But he also, while he was there, developed a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. But more importantly, at some point, Apollos became a Christian in Alexandria. Christianity came very early to Egypt. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, we read about the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that there were Egyptians there when Peter preached his great sermon on Pentecost, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. Some of those were undoubtedly Egyptians who took their new faith in Jesus back to Alexandria, and Apollos comes to faith in him. It tells us he was not only converted, but he was instructed in the way of the Lord, meaning that he had been taught all about the life and teachings of Jesus. When Apollos arrived in Ephesus, he immediately sought the opportunity to preach the gospel in the Jewish synagogue there, 
which happened to be the very same synagogue that Aquila and Priscilla were attending regularly as they tried to reach Jewish people for Christ. Apollos was a powerful, eloquent speaker who preached boldly and with great fervor. Furthermore, what he communicated about Jesus was accurate as far as he went. There was only one problem. He knew only the baptism of John, that is, the baptism of repentance. He did not know about the baptism of the Spirit, whereby the Holy Spirit takes people and places them in to the body of Christ. In other words, there was a serious lack in Apollos' theology and respect to the Holy Spirit and the church. Priscilla and Aquila are greatly impressed with Apollos' potential for building up the body of Christ there in Ephesus, but they also spot this weakness in his teaching. What should they do about it? Confront him publicly? Write him off as a heretic? Treat him as a false teacher? No, they don't do none of that. They view him as a gem that needs polishing. And they take him quietly and privately into their home and explain to him the way of God more perfectly. They use the teachings they had received from the Apostle Paul to help him. Now, how does Paulus react when these ordinary tent makers try to correct his theology? Does he take offense? Does he pull rank on them, suggesting that he is far more educated than they are and he ought to be teaching them? Does he object that a woman has no business teaching scripture to a man? No. He humbly listens to both of them. He receives their help with gratitude and he adjusts his teaching accordingly. Friends, this is really quite amazing to me. Unfortunately, it is relatively rare for uniquely gifted people to be as humble and teachable as Apollos. I want to share a sad story with you from my own experience. Many of you have heard of the Gospel Coalition. It's an organization that provides multimedia content, conferences, courses, books, debates, training, and global resources for the international church. Their website, thegospelcoalition.org, is by far the most frequently visited Christian site on the World Wide Web, and I highly recommend it. I've been a member of the Gospel Coalition Council since TGC began in 2006. This council is a group of 45 to 50 pastors and theologians who govern TGC and its vision. Until I got old and went on emeritus status, I regularly took Pastor Josh with me to council meetings every year, and we both profited immensely from that relationship. Over the years, however, there were several members of the council who were extremely gifted but who developed major problems in their theology or behavior. I will mention three of them. 
Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, James McDonald of the Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago, and Darren Patrick of The Journey in St. Louis. If you follow religious news, you probably know these names. These men pastored three of the largest multi-site congregations in our country, and all were incredibly gifted communicators and leaders. But in each case, serious issues with their character and their ministry surfaced. So what did TGC do about it? Senior members of the council, including D.A. Carson, Tim Keller, and John Piper, took these men aside privately and individually to counsel them, encourage them to correct their viewpoints and their practice. All three rejected that counsel. Their attitude seemed to be that their churches were bigger and their influence was greater and their importance wider than those trying to counsel them. Each was removed from the council. And sadly, over a few years' time, all three became shipwrecked and lost their ministries. Mars Hill, which is the largest church in the Pacific Northwest, closed its doors. James McDonald was deemed unfit by his elders and fired, and only to sue his church and, and his elders in court. Darren Patrick was fired from the journey and committed suicide in 2020. How much better the avenue that Apollos took and how serendipitous for him that Aquila and Priscilla were available and willing to counsel him. I would love to have been able to sit in on those late night sessions before between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Slowly but thoroughly, they take this young man with so much fervor and energy and potential, and they direct him toward a more solid understanding of biblical truth. I view this as the first century equivalent of Tumi that Mike and Mary have used so effectively. May it take just a moment to urge each of us to examine our teachability quotient. Not one of us is so smart that we can't learn from the rest of us. But the concomitant truth to that is that none of us should be so intimidated by another person's position or degrees or success that we are unwilling to offer constructive criticism to a leader. If a pastor has fallen short, or distorted some area of truth, he really needs a Priscilla or Aquila in his church to take him aside and explain the way of God more accurately. And of course, he needs to listen. Well, were Priscilla and Aquila successful in this endeavor? Would you look at the last paragraph of Acts 18? It says, and when he, that is Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, 
showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. After ministering with Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus for a period of time, Apollos felt called to go across the Aegean to Greece and particularly to the city of Corinth. In the early church, there were a lot of traveling preachers, and some of them were heretics. So it was important for gospel workers to present letters of commendation whenever they went to a new area so that the believers there would know that they are bona fide gospel ministers. Apollos had been such a blessing to the church there in Ephesus, and he had been so effective as an apologist and an evangelist that they eagerly gave him letters of recommendation to take with him to Greece, urging the believers there to welcome him. By the way, virtually all of Mike's and Mary's contacts in India and Africa have come the same way, satisfied customers, commending them to go to new places to share the gospel. Well, so successful was Apollos' ministry there in Greece that when Paul writes his first letter to the church in Corinth, he, we discover that Apollos is one of four Christian leaders who have amassed such a, an ardent group of followers that the church there has essentially split into four denominations. You know those words from 1 Corinthians 1.12. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. And still another, the really spiritual people, said, I follow Christ. Now please understand, and this is very important, that Paul isn't chastising Apollos in the least for the fact that he is being followed by a faction in the church, any more than he's accusing himself of wrongdoing or Jesus. The fall doesn't lie with Jesus or any of these other Christian leaders. The fall lies with the followers. In fact, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he goes on to say, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? I think that Eugene Peterson captures the real meaning there when he says in the message, aren't you being totally childish? Paul goes on to say, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Paul does not fault Apollos. In fact, he puts him on the same level as himself, a servant, a nobody, just with a different task. I planted the seed, but Apollos watered it. Paul was preeminently an evangelist. He was someone who introduced people to the gospel and started churches. Evangelism is one of the great Ministries, gifts of the Spirit, and it's essential. But just as new plants need to be watered or they will shrivel up, so new converts need to be nurtured and edified 
by biblical teaching and doctrine. And that is where Apollos shone. So together, Paul and Apollos made a great team with God getting all the credit. We know nothing else about Apollos. Some think he wrote the book of Hebrews. Martin Luther thought so and made a pretty mean argument for it. But the key thing I want you to remember about Apollos is that his incredible contribution to the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesus and Corinth and everywhere he went was only made possible by the ministry of this lay couple in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila. He was successful because they were willing and available to disciple him. Every convert who came to faith through Apollos' ministry was, in a sense, a convert of Priscilla's and Aquila's as well. I want you to think for a moment about the fact that every effective minister of the gospel, you can start with Billy Graham, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, you name them, had someone, and probably several someones, who encouraged them, discipled them, and yes, even corrected them early in their ministry. That person may have been a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a parent, or a mentor. That person more than likely did not have advanced degrees, had not published books, had not been on TV, and maybe is is totally unknown to the church at large. But in God's book, that person has played as critical a role in sharing the gospel as Graham himself or Swindoll, or Jeremiah. There are evangelists and pastors in Indian Africa and in prisons in America who are accomplishing great things for the gospel today, but they are successful only because someone like Mike and Mary went to them and gave them the tools that they needed to flourish. It was impossible for those people to come to America and go to Trinity Seminary or to Bible college, or even to attend a a church that has strong preaching like Josh does here at our church. But when someone offers them a Tumi class in their own language, or a Bible correspondence course through SAT-7, or a Jesus film on a DVD, they are able to grow in their understanding of the faith. Now when Priscilla and Aquila conducted this ministry in Apollos' life, they were really fulfilling the charge that Paul gave to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to turn there, fine, or I'll just read it. Listen to these words in the first verse of 2 Timothy 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And that brings us to our last point this morning. Pass it on, but be willing to pay the price. God's plan A for the spread of the gospel is for the apostolic faith to be passed on to reliable people qualified to teach others. That was Timothy's charge. 
It's what pastors are to do. It's what Sunday school teachers are to do. It's what parents are to do. It's what Awana leaders are to do. It's what small group leaders are to do. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila did. Did you notice that Paul does not say to Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to ordained pastors or to seminary graduates, but rather to reliable people who will be able, qualified to teach others. This is not a recipe for the professionalization of the ministry. Instead, it's a recipe for equipping the priesthood of all believers. I'm not minimizing the ministry of pastors, obviously, but we must never limit ministry to the professionals. That kind of discipling that Paul calls for, of course, is not easy. It does not come without cost. That's why Paul goes on to say, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. There's a a price to be paid for the ministry of passing on the good news. Um, Priscilla and Aquila were exiled from their home country. No doubt they suffered persecution in Corinth and later in Ephesus. The church met in their home. That is certainly not without cost. It cost them their privacy, it cost them convenience, and certainly cost them resources. Friends, the call to passionately further the gospel is a daunting task, and that's why Timothy needed encouragement to do it. It's why Priscilla and Aquila needed encouragement, and we're no different. Listen to the next paragraph from 2 Timothy 2. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When Paul wrote this, he was in prison, chained like a criminal, waiting for his execution. But, he says, God's word is not chained. It is still not chained, friends. It will never be chained. It's free, it's powerful, it's effective, and it's available through satellite ministry, through video, through phone apps, through correspondence courses, through one-on-one discipleship carried on by modern-day Priscilla's and Aquila's. The goal, of course, is that people might hear the gospel and obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. We haven't quite completed the biography of Priscilla and Aquila. Toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he wrote the epistle to the Romans. By that time, we find Priscilla and Aquila back in Rome, and a church is meeting in their house in Rome. Paul writes this in Romans 16. Greet Prisca, her nickname, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life and going back to Rome under an edict of exile from the emperor was certainly risky. 
to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that is in their house. And then we learn later on that they're back in Ephesus again. When Paul wrote his very last letter, 2 Timothy, he was awaiting execution in Rome. And in perhaps the last paragraph he ever wrote, he says this in 2 Timothy 4.19, Greet Prisca and Aquila. So this couple traveled from Rome to Corinth to Ephesus, back to Rome, and back to Ephesus a second time. Everywhere they went, they were active in Christian work and their home was always open to the local church for its meetings. I can't improve upon the summary of this couple's life that is offered by a church historian a hundred years ago. He wrote, they furnished the most beautiful example known to us in the apostolic age of the power for God that could be exerted by a husband and wife working in unison for the advancement of the gospel. They were willing to lose themselves in the footnotes of history, but their influence was clearly seen around the world. I urge each of us today to consider our vocation as a means to an end. That is, that we might pursue an avocation, a passion for sharing the gospel so that people might obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for the example you have set before us today in your word of an ordinary couple who accomplished extraordinary things for you just by being available. Help us to not just admire them, but seek to emulate them. We ask that you will raise up more Priscilla's and Aquila's by your grace, even from our own congregation. In Jesus' name.